0: Welcome, listeners, to Out of the Box with your host, Jonathan Russo. Resuming our topic-specific episodes today, we introduce a special bit for our literary fans. I've long loved reading Anthony Trollope, the Victorian-era English novelist credited for many a things, including, interestingly, his invention of the postbox called the Pillar Box in 1854. For some reason, Trollope's insights into human nature are so accurate And his plotting is so superb that I can't wait to sit down and read one of his novels. I even read a biography of him recently that helped explain his travels and background. Upon reading The Way We Live Now, I was just mesmerized. It was like reading Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities, but 150 years earlier. Nothing has changed. The moors and behavior of the financial class are, I guess, timeless. In Trollope's day, it was the railroads. Often, tracks were laid only in the imagination of the issuers of stock. Today, it's cryptocurrency that holds the value only in the minds of its believers. In the way we live now, the raw emotions of greed, the desire for riches, even if that means fraud, mirrors today's ever-present swindlers, who, it seems, are arrested on a weekly basis. Fortunately, Dominic Edwards, chair of the Trollope Society, joins us on this episode to help understand the life and work of Anthony Trollope and the parallels the late novelist's writings have to today's financial world. Mr. Edwards is a self-proclaimed marketer, digital enthusiast, and information producer. He serves as director of communications at the Terence Higgins Trust. First off, Dominic, do me a favor, What is the Trollope Society? It sounds like a marvellous group of people, something I'd really like to join and be a member of. Do tell us about it, please. What is it?
1: Well, the Trollope Society was set up in the, I think, the 1980s when it was realised that uh, there wasn't a complete edition of Trollope in print. And uh, it was set up with the objective of publishing the whole of, of Trollope. And it did that over the course of a number of years and published all 47 novels, the autobiography, non-fiction and now that publishing program has come to an end. We're now a group who read Trollope and we go on holidays to Trollope locations and we're a global Trollope community. We read The Way We Live Now during lockdown and we've had up to 300 people reading three-decker novels um, during lockdown and coming together on Zoom
0: to, to talk about them. That's wonderful. If you have not read Trollope, listeners, please start. You will not be disappointed. Do me a favor, Dominic, tell us a little bit uh, about the placement of Trollope amongst British novelists like Dickens and Thackeray. Where did he stand in the hall of great British novelists? Well, Trollope is a great Victorian
1: novelist. He was writing at the height of sort of the highest Victorian period, the 1860s through to the 1880s. At times, he, he overlapped with Dickens. He was publishing towards the end of Dickens' career, and some of his books outsold Dickens but he wasn't the huge celebrity that Dickens is then and now. So he's a Victorian author who was hugely popular in his day, but in his autobiography he said he thought that his works would last maybe 25 years, and I'm delighted that they've lasted, you know, uh, 150 or more. And I think the importance is that Trollope is an author who... In uh, 50 years time, we could have lost. He he could go the same way as other authors, such as Mrs. Oliphant, who people don't read anymore. So he's slightly below Dickens. He's slightly below Jane Austen. He's slightly below the Brontes. And for that reason, the Trollope Society really is important. And it's vital that people continue to read him because if he were to disappear, it would be
0: a huge cultural loss. I agree with that. I understand he was serialized like many of the Victorian novelists were first. They didn't come out uh, in, in a book form, they came out in a serial magazine form. That was a hugely popular form, uh, and he wrote towards that. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Uh, well, he had sort of a variety of publishing methods. So some of his earlier books were published as books to start with. Um, certainly, Barchester Towers, his most popular book was published in book format uh, from the word go. But books like The Way We Live Now uh, were published in serial. Um, and his most sort of his hugely successful book, uh, Framley Parsonage, was the first one he, he, he had serialised. And um, it was serialised um, and they were long serialisations. They were over about a year, probably a year and a half. So, you know, they were serialised over a long period of time. And Framley Parsonage caused a sensation. People loved it and famously the author of North and South, Elizabeth Gaskell. Famously, Elizabeth Gaskell, when she, when she was reading Framley Parsonage, wrote, I wish Mr. Trollope would continue writing Framley <laughs> Parsonage forever. He, unlike Dickens, though, tended to, to finish the work before the publication, so he wasn't writing absolutely to the deadline, although on, on some occasions he was, and that allowed him to introduce absolutely contemporary uh, kind of themes as the novel progressed uh, to, to, so his, his, his writing was not predated. He didn't write right. uh, like George Eliot did 30 years before. He wrote
0: absolutely to the minute it was being published. Like Tom Wolfe. Yes. OK, so help me with one other thing. Why is it that nobody writes like that anymore? How is it that the, the mind of, the, of a Trollope and his ability to express himself in words and then sentences and then paragraphs and then chapters and then whole books is so so amazing. You just read it and you go like, how did anybody think of this, let alone get it down? I'm always astounded that people had the insights and were able to verbalize and and, and then communicate that. It just seems to be a completely lost art. I guess like somebody can't paint like Tintoretto anymore or something. Could you explain how the mind changes or how Anthony Trollope's mind was so attuned to his time and he was so smart?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, he was a remarkable man. And I think several things came together. Firstly, as a young boy, he had a sort of a wretched childhood and he was somewhat of an outsider. And that gave him gave him the ability to observe and observation is is throughout his novels. And he observes uh, people and their characterization. He also had amazing insight. Uh, into what we now know as psychology. But before we had psychology, Trollope was observing people's behaviour and their motivations, and that's what really interested him. And he used to, on his way home from his wretched school life, uh, he'd walk, had a long walk home, and he used to sort of um, create characters, and he would create them fully formed, and he would put them uh, into a position. And then he would see, he, he says that he would see what they do, So he absolutely allowed his characters the freedom based on the characters that he knew and he regarded them as as fully-fledged real people. Um, And so that's why his characterization is so perfect because he's not forcing his characters. They're doing what he feels is natural to them. Um, And the last dimension of it, is really he had an enormous appetite for hard work and he would uh rise at five o'clock in the morning famously he had a servant pay he paid a servant five pounds extra a year to bring him a cup of cup of coffee at 5am and he would then write for three hours but he wouldn't sit there chewing his pencil he would say every 15 minutes you have to write 250 words and he did that for three hours and then he went to his full-time job at the post office so this together Gave us this remarkable canon of literature of forty-seven uh, novels.
0: Okay, it's a gift that just keeps on giving.
1: Let's. Well, go. I think we're probably quite lucky he didn't have a computer because we probably have several hundred novels if, <laughs> if that was the case. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, Let, let's go now to the way we live now. The the book that he wrote uh, in eighteen seventy-three or eighteen seventy-five, depending upon you know when it mm-hmm. came out. Um, I was so taken with that book that uh, I, I, this is why I needed to call you and, and do this show. It, it it was uncanny. He he created these characters who are fraudsters, um, con men, but do it in such an elegant, brilliant way that you're just mesmerized at how they pulled it off, just exactly, though, like so many people are doing today. I mean, we had Enron, we've had endless frauds. In fact, unfortunately, somebody died. uh, I think his name was Anthony Villar, who was a a complete con man who gave all of his money to the Metropolitan Opera. But, you know, we didn't really base it on any true investments, based it on some complete fraudulent scheme and obviously was sentenced to jail and and served time based on a complete fraud. But everybody loved him and thought, you know, he was like a pillar of society in New York because he was involved in the opera. He didn't con poor people, he conned really, wealthy people. And we see this you know, on and on. And with Jeffrey Epstein is, is another yet prime example of this sort of thing. So um, we have this amazing character, uh, Auguste Melmont, if I'm saying it right. Melmonte, how do you say it? Uh, well, it's a funny thing with Trollope, and I find this often, because very
1: often you come across words, I come across words which I've never heard spoken, <laughs> and you have to decide how to say them in your head, don't you? You're going to read them, you have to decide. So I always think, uh, say them however you fancy. So for instance, in The Palaces, in one of his greatest series of six novels, there's a key character called Lady Glencora. I call her Lady Glencora. Other people pronounce her name differently. For the way we live now, I call him Augustus Melmot. But um, really, uh, really, um, that's one of the joys of Trollope, and and you you (laughs) talk to people, and they will have come up with a different pronunciation to you because they have to work it out somehow, and and people work it out differently. But I call him Augustus Melmot.
0: Okay, so Augustus decides that he's going to create a railroad scam. And the parallels to the cryptocurrency uh, or the Internet of today just are are so shocking that you you just can't. You, I couldn't believe it. In other words, he made up a line. He decided that I think the line was going to go from Salt Lake City to Veracruz, Mexico, uh, it's, it's something like that. And this was going to be a a railway line that was going to carry cargo all the way from these two cities. But, of course, there was never really any intention of building this line. It may not have ever made sense. They didn't really secure any rights to build the line. They didn't really buy any property to build the line. They just sort of floated the shares and and got the general public to believe that they were going to build this line. And then just like today, they filled a board of directors, if you will, with all these illustrious people who they basically – implied you know get in early on the scam and the shares will just go you know go up and up and up recently i also read a book called money for nothing about the south sea bubble and it was the same exact situation they just created uh, earlier than in this scam, they just created a, a, a stock holding company and then basically just jacked up the price. It was really nothing but, but what we call pump and dump right now. Mm-hmm. But it was so elaborate that you just you can't believe the machinations. How did Trollope know that this was going on? What was happening in, in mm-hmm. England at the time? Well, absolutely. I mean, Trollope's character, uh, Augustus
1: Normott, is in the book called The Great Financier. And he really, uh, you know, is this amazing con artist. But the book is so much more than about a huge fraud. Um, it's about actually not just El- Melmot's fraud that he commits. It's about society's willingness to buy into it. Exactly. Um, it's about more than fraud. It's about dishonesty on a grand scale across society. Um, and beyond that, it's beyond the. It's about the abuse of women. It's about anti-Semitism. It's a real snapshot of society at the time. And the issue of fraudulent um, kind of shares and uh, bubbles was something which uh, wasn't new. And Trollope was simply reflecting what he was seeing in society. In fact, he was a little bit late to the party because (laughs) the government had really begun legislating on this some 20 years earlier. So, you know, there was the Joint Companies Act of 1856, the Limited Liability Act of 1855, the Fraudulent Trustees Act of 1857, and the Larceny Act of 1861. So, actually, by stuffing his board of directors with kind of famous names and people who won't challenge him, he would have been contravening the Fraudulent Trustees Act of 1857. So, what Trollope is doing is is showing how a charismatic fraudster can get people to buy into his scheme and that's what we see time and time again which is why when there's a huge scandal i remember the first one where i read the way we live now there's the huge scandal around robert maxwell who also committed suicide so even right. closer to the way we live now and everyone right. said oh, the way we live now it's robert maxwell And then it's Bernie Madoff. And then it's whoever else comes along. But what these people have in common is a huge charisma. They tend to be bullying and they get people to believe in them and people want to believe in them because they're going to make money out of it. Um, and, And that's what he's kind of exposing. But if you look at the actual details of it, Trollope doesn't get it exactly right. And he's worried about getting it wrong. So what he does is, and this is very interesting, he doesn't rely on the scheme. He makes Augustus Melmot commit a crime, a clear crime. He makes mm. him forge right. his daughter's signature. So they're, they're, this simplifies it for the reader, because the reader doesn't have to understand the complexities of uh-huh. the Fraudulent Trustees Act. Uh-huh. They just need to know he's committed a crime and
0: he knows he's committed a crime, and that's his downfall. Um, but, 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 but he knew, yeah. but he knew he was committing a crime because they really knew they were never going to build a railroad. Right. Absolutely. OK. I mean, I really doubt that they were going to build this railroad.
1: No, he he's a, he it's just about the share price. Right. Uh, the only character in the book who wants to build the railroad is, is Paul Montague, who is is all of the characters in Trollope are, are flawed. Um, and Paul Montague is is flawed, and this is what makes them so real. And there are actually times when we sympathise with Augustus Melmott. There's a time when he begins to realise that everything's unravelling, and he sort of reflects that perhaps he shouldn't have overreached himself, he was ambitious because he wanted social position as well as money. And you begin to feel a little bit Sorry for him. I mean, this is Trollope's extraordinary skill is is his characterization, and nobody, not even Augustus Melmot, even though he is a terrible individual, but the worst things he does is not the financial manipulation. He abuses physically, not in a sexual way, but he beats yeah. his daughter. He's a really, and these scenes are, are really shocking, even even 150 years later. Uh, so, um, but I think in all of his characters, they're multifaceted, and there is some if not good in Augustus Melmore, we can understand him, and that's what makes him so compelling.
0: There's a US show called Billions, that sort of portrays a hedge fund entrepreneur and uh, all of his machinations with his you know, huge company and his wife and a prosecuting attorney and the uh, people chasing him and the, the various love interests and sexual interests of, of the partners. And uh, it, it, it just goes on for you know a couple of seasons. It was an enormous hit in the United States. I don't know if you've seen Billions, but it's again, right out of the pages of the way we live now. It also is that Trollope didn't feel like writing a financial novel. I mean, there's so much romance in this, in society and sexuality and desire and uh, social class and positioning and just weekends at country houses. It's a grand canvas. It's not a dry financial book. Why did he feel he needed to do that? Just to Mm. please everybody? Well, no, I think
1: we are benefiting from... This was written in sort of 1875, and it's the kind of the zenith of... The art form of the three-decker novel. Uh, he, bearing in mind, he had a hundred chapters to explore. He had multiple storylines all crisscrossing each other backwards and forwards. He had room to really expand on his characters. And of course, people would have read this over the period it was published in part from uh, it starts the publication started in February 1874 and went right through to September 1875. So this will have been a part of people's lives in the same way as we might watch, you know, a TV series. They will have read each part every month and kind of kept it on the boil. So this is very different to the way we read a book now where we just buy a relatively short novel in huge print, which is right. probably a few hundred pages. This is a hundred chapters. You can really get into the characterization and the motivations of these people. And the thing which is important is for maybe 60 chapters, more than 60 chapters, we don't know. Everything in the way we live now is rumor. It's all about speculation, rumor. We're not sure what's true. We're not sure what's false. We're not sure where Melmot came from. We're not sure how fraudulent he is we right. just don't know until it arrives at chapter 64 so this is you know several hundred pages <laughs> into the novel and then at this point we still don't know how if he's dishonest or not and then Trollope tells us he comes in with this 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 really powerful statement which wouldn't which wouldn't work unless we'd had 64 chapters before it of building up the character and then Trollope says of course he had committed forgery, of course he had committed robbery, that indeed was nothing, for he had been cheating and forging and stealing all his life. Now up to that moment we don't know that, so that's how in a book of this scale you get the opportunity to build a character up and then really punch
0: the reader with a fact like that which they've been unsure of for hundreds of pages. Well that caught me and that that captivated me. Um, I was just again, it's like a high-wire act of, of brilliance to keep the characters on a boil, to keep the dialogue fresh and, and amazing, the subplots all cooking along. You just look at this at, at, at like, as, again, like a high-wire act. You go like... How can he do this? How long can Mm. he stay up there, you know, and hand off these amazing stories and characters? When is he gonna tire or when is he gonna fail? And it never fails and he never tires. It just gets more and more intense. When August though, does do that forgery, if I'm not mistaken, his back was against the wall. Mm. He had to do that. Otherwise the empire would have come crashing down earlier. So in order to stave it off and like live another day to try to recoup it, he creates the, he he does the forgery if I'm not mistaken. Isn't that correct? but like he was forced into it, absolutely. He's absolutely cornered. And the thing is, his yeah. plan for this moment this
1: is the thing he's done. He's thought, well, if it all goes wrong, I'm going to, I've given a vast fortune to my daughter, and it's not in my name. So if I right. lose everything, don't worry, I can fall back. My daughter's got Marie, has money. But Marie, who he has beaten and treated in an absolutely despicable way throughout her life, turns on him. And she's, uh, uh, no, it's my money. You've signed it over to me, and I'm not signing that form. Now, he needs that money. It's just right. a matter of hours. He has to have it <laughs> in order to pay a debt on a, a property transaction. Now, he's actually got the money, but his his daughter will not sign it back over to him. And so that's why he he, he commits this fraud um, assigns her name, and everything comes tumbling down, and he's exposed. But the interesting thing is... And this may be to do with a lack of confidence in Trollope. He felt perhaps that in some way this is a novel without a hero, which is, you know, everybody is unpleasant. But to some degree, he, I think he felt he can't leave a trail of ruin because then people will decide it too difficult to buy into. There has to be something human and identifiable and slightly less repellent about Melmott than that. So actually what happens is Melmott doesn't, with the exception of one character, who's probably the, the most honest, straightforward, and decent character in the book, uh, Ezekiel Breakheart. Nobody else loses money. Nobody goes broke as a result of Melmot's fraud. Everybody actually, at the end, gets married and kind of lives happily. But I think that's because Trollope felt he couldn't create a monster who destroys everything. Sure, you um, need that. I think.
0: Instead of a Hollywood ending, you had a London ending. You know, people don't want people don't want to live in the darkness all the time. They want to think there is some human redemption. That's why we have quote Hollywood endings. You know, so yeah,
1: yeah. absolutely. And I think that for me is is though perhaps a weakness. He lost. I think he lost the confidence. It would have been better if there was a trail of destruction behind Melmot, but there isn't. And actually, for many people, obviously not more Melmot, but for many people, there are. Uh, happy, there is a happy ending, and he ties it all up nicely in a kind of a series of right. weddings at the end, uh, which is what was expected of a Victorian novel at
0: the time. Well, Dominic, it was expected because who said uh, nobody but a blockhead writes for anything except money? Who, who, who what, what author said that? I'm not sure who said that, but Trollope said you know, every
1: word should tend to entertain. He was writing to sell. Right, he was writing and, you know, to sell, that
0: exactly. That's my point. He, he, it, my point is he wasn't really writing for any other reason than to make a lot of money and live well, and that's what, you know, that's what a Victorian novel wanted to do. They had a message and it was great, but if they, they needed to make money, they wanted to make money and their success was measured by money, uh, that, that's absolute, for sure.
1: And, and Trollope is is the absolute kind of doyen of money. Right. Everything, he, he, he created, when he created a character, he. Assigned them an income. So he knew exactly <laughs> what they earned, and that affected their behavior. Um, not only that, in his autobiography, he lists all of the income he gets from all of his novels. So, the way we live now, he got paid by Chapman and Hall £3,000. Now, that's mm, probably about half a million today. So, this book brought in a lot of money for him. They didn't get royalties, so he sold it outright, right to right. Chapman and Hall. Right. Um, but he got about it got about three thousand pounds for it. he got three thousand pounds for it, which um, was about the height of his sort of uh, sales. He got just slightly more for Can You Forgive Her? He got three thousand five hundred. for can you forgive her? But he wrote this at the peak of his kind of financial power and he sold it to Chapman Hall for a vast sum of money.
0: Dominic, do you read a do you read any contemporary American or British novelist? Are you involved in that?
1: Uh, Very little. I tend to focus mostly on Victorian novels because I'm now used to the expanse of a Victorian novel, the three-decker, where there is huge opportunity for characterisation and to get to know your characters.
0: I find shorter novels a a bit unsatisfactory, uh, leaving me wanting a bit more. Agreed, but like a Tom Wolfe in a bonfire of vanities, you know. I, I, is there a British equivalent to that? Is it Martin Amis? Are there? Who's a British equivalent today that you would say is as close to Trollope as possibly could be? Could you mention one person if you thought thought? thought? Oh.
1: I mean, I don't I don't know that I can. not fine. because there isn't. There may very well be, but because but I'm not fine. Um, That's- I don't know enough kind of contemporary novelists. I would hope that it's a tradition that other novelists are following in, but I'm perhaps not knowledgeable enough to,
0: to say who. So would you characterize my reaction like a smack in the head with a you know a, a two by four when I read The Way We Live Now and the parallel to American society and it's rife with fraudulence Is that the reaction of other people for the first time now who are reading Trollope? I mean, I I can't be unique in that. It must be a pretty universal reaction. I would assume the Trollope Society gets new adherence from people who pick up a book like I do and go, oh, my God, this can't be for real. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, The Way We Live Now, apart from the fact it's got the title, I mean, that is an absolutely brilliant title, which uh, I'm sure every other author would like to have. So The Way We Live Now is a great title and it really delivers because Across time, it transcends time and it really is the way we live now. But the reason it's the way we live now is because Trollope understands people and he writes about people. And Augustus Melmot, and a huge cast of characters in the novel <laughs> are all real people. Yeah. And he's using the financial backdrop uh, to kind of uh, provide... A, he describes the plot as a vehicle for which characters sit can, can, can travel in. But he's got this financial backdrop. It provides him with the world. But the interest is in the people. And people transcend time. People's motivations, their selfishness, their pettiness, their uh, ambition is the same now as it was 150 years ago. So whilst we read the way we live now, and it's nice because it's one book about the financial world and you can read it and it's very powerful. And I think if he'd had just written that, he probably would be a more famous novelist. But because he wrote so much more, (laughs) it's kind of hard to pigeonhole him. But if you read the Palaces series, which is a political series, um, six novels set in the political world of Westminster, it's not about politics. The Reform Club is there. I mean, so the Reform Act is there, um, and all the kind of uh, references to politics. But again, it's about the politicians, their families, their relationships. And the same with Barchester. There's the Barchester series, six more novels set in the clerical, and they're great fun, but they're not about the church. They're about the characters. When people come to Trollope Society and they join our groups, the thing they're most amazed about is that these characters are real and they're people we know today and they transcend time. That's because Trollope simply understood
0: and wrote about real people. I could agree more. You know, sometimes I play a game with myself where I try to estimate the IQ of very intelligent people that I read or uh, I read about. And I just try to imagine, like, if they gave them a US IQ test, you know, a standard Sanford-Binet IQ test or whatever you call it, what would it be? I, I somehow think Trollope's IQ is about 220. <laughs> I don't, I, I'm not joking. I, I, you, you can't imagine the brain power it takes to to create the characters, understand the characters, and know the social situations they were in, know the political, financial, emotional, sexual, and then create dialogue around it. It's like... Really, any one brain can do this. I mean, it, it's it just blows my mind that uh, that the human mind could be so so intelligent. I just don't understand how one person could accomplish all of this. So I give him like a two ten. I don't even think it goes up that high. But if it did, he would get it. Do, just, am I making sense to you? Absolutely. And I
1: think the thing is, Trollope was not a good student. And he was actually he, he talks about being a hobbledehoy, which is someone who kind of doesn't come into their own until middle age. And he, he, he was one of those people. He was not successful at school. He was very, very unsuccessful in his early career at the post office. In around uh, the 1840s, he moved to Ireland and he began to write. Okay. He was sent to Ireland by the post office. And that's when he found himself and he found this amazing ability to write these characters um, and um, really under, understand people. I okay. mean, he's, he's, he, he, what he says in his autobiography is that, um, you know, a writer needs to be able to write. They need to be able to write in the same way as a great pianist's music comes from their fingers. And he did that by simply writing every day and working and working and honing his skill right. until he could just express himself perfectly without any sort of restriction and that's why he's so readable his 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 his, his, his uh, dialogue is is recognized as being very natural but his just his general style is incredibly readable because he's perfected his craft and he can express himself Absolutely perfectly. And that comes across in the page. So he didn't struggle and labour over every paragraph. It flowed from him because of all the work he'd done before.
0: Got it. Well, many geniuses are like that. And uh, without going into too much detail, I just want to reveal to listeners that I, too, had a very troubled childhood and was very awkward in school and uh, an academic failure until I was into later college years, et cetera, and uh, had a very difficult upbringing like that. So uh, maybe there's some personal identification here. I I don't know. It's it's something to it's read true. his
1: autobiography i think you I, know his, his, yeah. his autobiography talks about his childhood it's not very personal he, right. he he mostly is talking about his kind of um publication history right. but he, he he does talk about his his childhood and he actually was very firmly opposed to what was being introduced by i think it was trevelyan at the time which were the civil service exams because he got into the civil service were well, largely as a favor through his mother and he <laughs> feels that he would have failed the civil service entry exams Right. And that means he would never have had a career. So he's he kind of was a strange thing for us because we obviously, you know, believe in meritocracy. And, yes. and, and 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 but Trollope says, you know, at the time when he was a young man, he, yeah. he it wasn't much to him. He kind of grew into himself.
0: I wonder if the post office was a hindrance though if he if he he didn't have that as a backdrop whether he would have been um even more prolific and even more driven and more successful like a starving artist that had to produce to feed himself who knows we'll never know anyway let me wrap this up by saying Thank you so much. Your insights and your discussion about one of my favorite books in the world, The Way We Live Now by Anthony Trollope, was really useful, I think, to our listeners. And I would encourage all of them to uh, start to get to know Trollope. This book is, a, I think, a good entry point. It was a, the fourth or fifth Trollope novel that I had read. But I think that it would be good to start here. And then as soon as you you, you get into Trollope and form the appreciation for him that I hope you do, I hope you uh, contact Dominic and get involved in the uh, Trollope Society society, I'm going to do so because I'm sure that it's going to be a lot of fun to to continue to do that. So, Dominic, thank you so much for your insights into Trollope and the way we live now. I really appreciate the conversation and hopefully uh, our listeners did too. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's been
1: a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Listeners, thanks again for tuning in to Out of the Box with Jonathan Russo. Your input is valuable to us and we'd really like to hear from you please send us an email anytime with feedback at OOTBwithJRusso at gmail.com and follow us on our Twitter page, OOTB with Russo. This has been a copyrighted production of Grapevine Incorporated. All rights reserved.